0: People talking, hunters everywhere. Doesn't get any better. I, the only thing I was wondering is like, is this headset gonna mess my hair up?
1: Pretty much a one species wander, so all I know is Samba deer, but the more the more I think I know, the more I realize I need to learn more.
0: There's a, there's a movement in the blackberry bushes and the cloak of invisibility gets switched
1: off and Rogers appears. With the crazy world we live in today, many of us seek adventure of the unknown. Join the five of us everyday Aussies from all walks of life, share stories from men and women of all hunting camps. From tips and techniques to the emotional roller coaster ride fulfilling a lifelong dream, there is a story to be told by all. Welcome to Hunting Camp Down Under.
0: Good morning, everyone. Rob Herbert here from Hunting Camp Down Under. Today, I've got with me world famous Boyer, South Cox from Stalker Stick Bows. I've been at South's place for the last week, enjoying sharing his workshop and a few trade tips and secrets that will stay with me. <laughs> I've been on a, on a bit of a sabbatical across the States and this is the end of my trip over here. Um, and for those people that don't know South, I'll get him to have a bit of an introduction about who he is and his background and where we are today with uh, Stalker Stickbo. So good morning, South. Morning, Herbie. How you doing? Yeah, good, man. I've had a unreal couple of days here and got to get up into the park, up in the Rockies, and have a look at some elk last night. It's yeah, pretty... there was a pile of them up there last
1: night. Yeah, it was unreal. Yeah, you're heading home today after two months. Yeah. It's two months on the move, so you got to be pretty happy about that. Yeah, getting back into my workshop and, and
0: being able to put into place, I guess, the stuff that I've picked up and learned over here is going to be reaching to do it yeah getting after it yeah
2: yeah it's funny i mean we were talking about this i don't know it was yesterday or the day before about you know being gone from work so much and lost production time and i imagine there had to been some anxiety you know before you left about is it really worth it and then you go and you learn even if you learn just you know a few little things here and there then it can really change you know the way you build and production and workflow and all that so it's uh it's always fun for me when I when I talk to somebody, a fellow tradesman, and and uh, you know see how they think do things, and then also just see how their minds work and how they sort out problem solving and and that stuff. Yeah, I think that would have been in
0: my negative space, the problem solving stuff. <laughs> <you know? laughs> no, it's a, it's a really a big part of the travel and the trip. I think when you do get out and have a bit of a look around, and I always try and get to people's places that can value add to what I do and Mm -hmm. look at people's processes and there's things that I've picked up here that are certainly going to help me um, improve my processes which in in turn means that I'm going to have a tidier workshop, better product and an outcome for me which is always positive.
1: Sure, yeah.
0: So I'll roll back to um, who South is. For those that don't know, South's got a uh, company, like I said, uh, Stalker Stickbows. but um, South's been involved in hunting for a long time so over to you, South, where did you start hunting and a little bit of a background on that sort of stuff?
2: Sure. So I started out, um see, when I was five years old is when I first got my hands on a bow, found an old recurve under a neighbor's um, house there and started shooting it and that kind of kindled my interest in archery there in the beginning. And uh, I grew up in a vegetarian family. Well, my mom was a vegetarian. My parents were divorced when I was five. So (laughs) half the time I was a vegetarian and not a happy vegetarian. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, so I was hell bent on going to get my own protein, though that didn't happen for at least another decade or so, you know, from when I first became uh, exposed to archery. Uh, And then I got my first compound when I was 13 and and, uh, shot my first deer. I remember for 16 or 17 I think I was 17 when I shot I was a junior in high school shot my first buck and and wow. I've been fortunate in that I've taken a deer every year since then so it's been a pretty long streak of being blessed as a bow hunter
0: you've not only just hunted in your natural country you've been overseas from America as well
2: yeah, oh yeah yeah um so I've hunted uh Africa first um i've hunted it wasn't overseas but I hunted canada i've hunted alaska came down to australia did a hunt there with antonio lara um a number of years ago and, mm-hmm. and he kept on inviting me until finally <laughs> i couldn't
1: refuse yeah had a great time with he and paul thompson and and uh so you know it was that, that was a fun trip down yeah cool i think um a lot of people
0: um Uh, have done a lot of hunting prior to Instagram and prior to Facebook so sometimes those details are missed and when people might flick through your profile they don't get to pick up some of those other things that you've been involved in and I think it's but it's quite an important thing being a boy and being able to make a bow that performs well that you're actually out there and you hunt every year
2: yeah 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 it's funny I mean we we don't get the opportunities that you guys do down in Australia and it's actually i'm pretty envious of the of the amount of hunting opportunities you guys have and the kind of the more year-round accessibility to it Um, there are things that you can hunt year-round here you know pigs and but deer and stuff have very, very structured seasons here in the U.S. and so you don't get you know for one you don't get much opportunity from a tag allotment standpoint you know all the states across the United States have tags that you need to get for deer some of them you might only be able to shoot one deer you know in in a state per year and then other ones are more liberal where they're Back east, typically, where there's white-tailed deer, and, yep. and some of those are, are very liberal in their tag allotments. But typically, I'll get a chance to shoot, um, or I might you know, have two or maybe three tags a year that I get to hunt for deer specifically. And then uh, now that I'm living in Colorado, I can get an elk tag you know, very inexpensively and, and get a chance to hunt those as well.
1: What would be your favorite species to hunt? Uh, without a doubt, mule deer. I mean, that's the that's what brought me to...
2: Colorado was the the quality and uh, and not just of the quality of mule deer the opportunity but also just how beautiful the high country is and that's one of the things that really appeals to me about mule deer It's not just the species or just the style you know that you get to hunt them in spot and stock but also it's the like picture postcard Um, country that you spend you know a week or 10 days immersed in when you're up there hunting them and to me that's a huge part of uh of the experience for me so when you go for a hunt
0: um, it's not just a weekend thing you go away for a couple of days or, or longer
2: Typically yeah usually it's a minimum of 8 days 8 to 10 is is usually what I like to do cuz sometimes it takes you know a while to to unravel you know where the deer are and wait until one beds down I like to stalk them when they're bedded and And uh, a lot of times they'll bed in a spot that's not accessible for a stock or, you know, you're, you might be stalking and, and, uh, you know, every day and, and blowing stocks or, or in some cases blowing shots. But, you know, with, with traditional archery, you need opportunity and, and lots of it. So that's why I I like, I don't, I do an occasional, you know, three day weekend type of a hunt, but those don't often translate into success.
0: And do you find that uh, most of your hunts are conducted on public land?
2: Yeah, yep. yeah. I actually prefer. it. I mean, I do hunt private. And I'm not. Um, I'm not a uh, public land snob by any stretch. But just uh, I don't own um, any private land myself. That you know, or lease any that I have. Um, you know, exclusive rights to or anything like that. I get some invitations here and there, and and. Uh, um, usually it's for whitetail and for me it's just a that's mainly about filling the shopping cart i love yeah. eating whitetail as you got to experience so, so do I. <laughs> for those
0: listening i tell you what whitetail is just just the bomb
2: <laughs> yeah it, it's some good stuff um it's very mild um usually really tender and yeah it's uh it's hard to beat and that's one hunt that Um, You know, my wife is not crazy about me leaving all the time to go hunting, but that's one she's pushing me out the door to go do. (laughs) Totally. We were talking about that last night. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, indeed.
0: So you butcher your own meat as well?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's um, occasional circumstances where I get it processed, but most of the time I'm I'm cutting up my own stuff. And man, I, I shot a giant elk last year, giant body sized elk last year. I got three hundred and forty nine pounds of boned out meat off of it. And wow. by you know, by the time I was done cutting and wrapping and and all that on that bowl, I was like, man, why didn't I just go get this one cut <laughs> up? Because I spent every day after work for a week working on that thing. And, man, it's uh, – I mean, it, it the great thing about processing your own meat is, you know, you – if you're meticulous like i am um then as you're working it you, you're, you're cutting out all the silver you know silver skin and the sinew and you know all that versus just processing it all and cutting that into steaks yeah. and then having to chew on it a lot more you know at the dinner table so um that's one of the reasons why i like to to process it myself
0: yeah it's a it's a thing that, that more people should get involved in i think and when you have got it on the Butcher's table, whatever you use, whether it's the kitchen sink or you've got a specific area set up, being able to know how to pull an animal apart and uh, to go one step past that, how to process it so that it becomes something that everyone that's eating it enjoys it. There's nothing worse than trying to chew into. A piece of meat that's still got that silver skin, as you Mm -hmm. you said, on the outside, and the kitties are looking at you and that. (laughs) Yeah. Endlessly (laughs) chewing. (laughs) Yeah. It's
2: a neat thing, too. I mean, from the standpoint of, uh, as you alluded to, I've got younger kids, and um, I've got younger and older kids, and, and the younger ones I'm able to include in on some of that um, process. And so they're learning about where their meat comes from and that it doesn't just come out of a, you know, a styrofoam package from the supermarket. And mm. so there's that connection for them back to the land. And even if they, you know, as adults don't hunt themselves and they'll at least have that connection of knowing where their dinner came from. And then, uh, we make snack sticks as well. And, and they just love, you know, yeah. running the grind, <laughs> the meat grinder and watching the so you know, the snack stick come out the other end. And, yeah. So it's uh, it's educational for them at the same time too. So you're kind of killing two birds with one stone.
0: It was actually really good to hear them say the other night when we we're having burgers, um, "Is this elk, Daddy?" You yeah. Know, they actually know the species that you may have in the freezer and not just it's meat. It's right. ground meat. You yeah. Know? So I think that that's an important thing to pass on to the kids these days. And if we're going to have a better generation that's going to come after us, it's all about that education and for them to be able to also accept the fact that they mightn't enjoy hunting, but they at least know how the world works and that there's more things than just the supermarket or the corner store to be able to get their stuff from.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: just to, to go on to, I guess, a little bit about uh, some of the other things that you do outside of bow making, you've also got a podcast yourself that you run?
2: Yeah, so I do the Western Bowhunter podcast, and we're just about to hit 100 episodes and... Um, got a handful of them in the bank, so I just got to get them to my editor and get them posted up. But I've been doing that for the last couple of years, and and uh, I haven't been very diligent about getting them out lately, but I've been just nose the grinding wheel getting totally. bows out. So there's, you know, that, uh, that constant, the, the paradox of being self-employed where you're, you know, family <laughs> time and and uh business and then um you know actual production building bows and then there's that you know what do you work on marketing and then you know doing your accounting and book work and trying to keep all that stuff balanced is is quite a challenge but
0: certainly is i think um no matter where or what you do um if you're self-employed or work for someone else trying to find that balance when you come home at night time and you've got kids like you're saying that really want your attention and you've got your wife that needs your attention and there's other other things in your life that you need to do as well you start fairly early five o'clock in the morning and at five o'clock in the afternoon you've already done your 12 hours and you're feeling yeah smoked already and you have still got to be the dad and the husband and all those sort of things
2: yeah yeah for me it comes down to a lot you know it's like a, you have that allotted time when you're you know your family knows you're in the shop and at that point in time you're supposed to be producing and making money to support the family and then you know, the podcast definitely helps with exposure and all that. So it's an integral part of running the business. But when you're sitting on, you know, you're looking at a stack of orders that need to get done and then you're going, okay, I can spend two hours recording a podcast or, or I can put two hours into making a bow. Then it, you know, trying to strike that balance becomes you know challenging there. And you know, you know, everyone's you're getting you know PMs that guys are when do you, when's the next podcast coming out, and then the phone's <laughs> ringing and the
1: guys going, when's my bow gonna be ready? So <laughs> you know, it's like, what do you do with your time? You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if people are going to look for the podcast, where do they find that?
2: Um, any of the podcast. Um, Platforms. Uh, platforms yeah just search the western bowhunter podcast and, and you'll come across it yeah
0: i remember one of my uh, earlier podcasts that i listened to and i was going between um, when i listened to gritty um to yourself and there was another one that was um of interest to me there was one that i i really did enjoy it was about when you got um Love Tet Boy B.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll give you a quick little rundown on that one. And I, I somewhere in one of my episodes early on, I think I did a, a full blown episode. So I'll just tease it. Yeah. You know, and then uh, guys will have to search it out on my podcast or I think on Gritty. I think I, I covered it as well on a real early episode of Gritty Bowman. Um, but uh, yeah, so I was in my early 20s. I might have been 21 or 22, something like that. Um, and, uh, I had a really good spot to hunt bears in Northern California. And it, um, I mean, when I say really good, it, it's like British Columbia or Canada, you know, Canada, Alberta, like that, as far as bear quantities. And in three and a half days, um, I personally, and I was hunting with two of my buddies. Um, I personally saw 50 bears in wow. two and a half, no, excuse me, three and a half days. So, um, I'm sure some of them were repeats, but I would guess that there, you know, at least 30 of them were different bears. Yeah. And uh, I ended up, um, make a long story short, I ended up sneaking up on a, on a bear that turned out to be a sow with cubs. And I, you know, full intention of, uh, of putting a tag on it and bringing it home. But then once I saw the cubs, I was like, oh, man. You know, I figured, well, I was so close. I was about 35 yards. I figured <laughs> I'd get a picture of it. And I had a 35-millimeter a camera with a... Um, telephoto 500 millimeter telephoto lens in my pack so i took the camera out (laughs) and i'm figuring you know oh man any second now she's going to turn and run and this was a lens the the lens was a little bit of a challenge to focus so i figured i'll just you know grab a picture now before she bolts just so at least i get one and then i'll make sure my second picture is really you know tack sharp Sharp. and focus so i clicked the shutter and the sound of the shutter she came down off the rock and charged me and I figured, ah, okay, just a bluff charge. So I'm you know, w- waving my arms and yelling at her, and she's still coming, and I'm still ye- yelling, and she gets about 10 yards of me. And I'm finally I'm just like, I'm out of here, man. <laughs> and uh, I turned and started running, and there's no Olympic sprinter that would have caught me that day. I mean, I was making tracks, getting off the top of this ridge. And it's funny, there's a, a, a old wives' tale that says, that, you know, uh, that a black bear can't run downhill because apparently, you know, their front legs are supposedly, I guess, shorter than their back legs. Well, that's BS because <laughs> that thing caught me. You know, I made about 20 yards, and she knocked me off my feet. She actually tackled me kind of like a football player. Her arms went around my, my uh, chest, and I had scratches on the front of my chest from where she had um, hit me as soon as she hit me, I was flying off my feet and totally airborne. And it was interesting how, you know, time will like slow down and how much clarity you can have. And I've always been fascinated by bear mauling stories. I've read all the Alaskan bear, you know, mauling books and, and all this. And, and, uh, So I knew, you know, what I needed to do. And and so as I'm flying through the air, all these thoughts of what I have to do when I hit the ground are going through my head. And I landed chin first on the ground and, and, you know, in a heap. And then as soon as I landed, I kind of rebounded and, uh, or bounced and got up my, got my knees underneath me, pulled, put my fingers behind the back of my neck to protect my neck and pulled my elbows in tight in front of me and just basically curled into a fetal position on my knees and elbows. And I was facing downhill with my right shoulder was the lowest. So it's kind of a little bit of an angle on the, on the slope there. And the sow was immediately on top of me and she was, um, Biting on my left shoulder, which was the highest point, and she's you know grabbing me around the right side with her claws and raking at my my side and my back with oh, her man. claws, and I just had this like it was you know Northern California mid-August and so it's pretty warm. So I was hunting in like this net type <laughs> of shirt, so it afforded no protection at all from her claws, and uh, she's you know biting at my left shoulder. And raking at my back with her claws. And meanwhile, I'm going through this mental checklist, you know, kind of almost oblivious as to what's going on above me and going, okay, you know, neck is covered, check, okay, you know, um, got your arms, you know, no no body part is, or is hanging out that she could grab a hold of and, and you know, shake and ragdoll me with and, you know, covering my stomach, yep, okay, got that. And uh, basically just making sure that everything vital that I, that I could cover up was it's covered up, you. yeah. And, uh, and so at that point, once I'd gone through that mental checklist, then I kind of became more aware of what was going on. And it sounded like she was chewing on chicken bones in my ear. I could hear you know, her crunch down on my shoulder, and it was, it was odd, no sensation of pain, but I could feel the pressure from her jaws. I could feel blood trickling down my arms, hmm. but no, you know, no pain at all and, uh, and I wasn't aware of any sound either. And, uh, except for kind of the tearing of my shirt. Um, and then all of a sudden she backed off. Um, and I, I could hear her breathing behind me. Um, and I felt like I was going to roll down the hill cause my knees and the elbows were really close together. So I moved my right leg to stabilize myself, um, a bit and was, even as I was doing that, I was like, Oh, that was a mistake. And, Bam, she's right back on me again. And this time she reached across my body, bit my right shoulder. Um, but because of, you know, that, how my body was positioned at being so low on the far side, I think it was awkward for her to get to. So then she reached up and bit me through the back of my hand that covered my neck. One tooth went into my hand and the other one slid by my right finger. So one right through the center of the back of my hand and the other one... Um, you know, right past the knuckle of my, my index finger on my right hand. And then that, that tooth went into the back of my neck, um, and cut kind of an L shape, you know, just a shallow wound, but kind of cut an L shape as it dragged across my neck there. And then, um, she went back, bit me on the left shoulder again and was working that over. And it was funny. I, I, could, I remember the smell of her breath, and it was like a putrid goat smell. It was just super
1: strong. It was so nasty. That wasn't coming from your pants? No. Yeah. <laughs> Probably was added to, ing,
2: added to it. But, yeah, it was. Uh... Then she bit me once on the lower back. Meanwhile, the whole time, she's raking at my back still with her claws. And uh, then she bit me once on the lower back and then backed off again. And, again, I can hear her breathing behind me. And then this time it's like I'm not moving for anything now. And so I just laid there perfectly still, and then all of a sudden heard her crash off through the brush down the hill. So at that point I got up and uh, I walked back up to my backpack. And and this whole time, for some reason I had this um, this knowledge, this confidence that I that she wasn't going to kill me. But I thought for sure I was going to have meat hanging off my arms, and I thought I was going to be pretty shredded up, and I was. I sat down when I got to my pack, got a drink of water, and then started inspecting, you know, myself. I took my shirt off and started looking. And fortunately, I was just peppered with, with uh, bite holes. And I I can't remember for sure, but I think I had 19 puncture holes from her teeth. Jeez. And uh, between, you know, hands, neck, um, both shoulders, and lower back. And uh, I had two of my buddies. We had been splitting up and uh, in hunting in separate directions up until that morning. And they, we had. I glassed up a bunch of bucks on this ridge, and we had all, you know, kind of uh, made a plan to a, of attack for this ridge. And so they were down below me, like maybe one of them was a hundred yards, the other one was two hundred yards or so down below me on the ridge. They had no idea anything that was going on, yeah. and uh, because when I was yelling, I was at the very top of the ridge, kind of almost on the backside. So yeah. the roll of the ridge was was uh, keeping them from being able to hear me. So. I started yelling, and at that point, they heard me, and they they thought I'd fallen and broken a leg or something, and they came up the ridge, and and then at that point, we are like, okay, Um, man, you know, we're trying to figure out a plan of what to do, and, and I thought, you know, I was like, I'm not that bad, I figured I can just walk out. And we were seven miles back in the wilderness at that point. Yeah, wow, that's a fair ways. Yeah, yeah, pretty good poke. And and uh, so I, I was like, oh, you no, know, you guys, I can walk out of here. And I stood up and almost passed out. And I was like, well, <laughs> I don't think I'm going <laughs> to yeah. be able to do this. So fortunately, one of the guys was a long-distance runner. The other guy was an EMT. And uh, so um, – this was 9 o'clock in the morning when I got mauled, and and so the guy that was a runner took off, and he had a huge canyon to traverse to get back to the main trail. So uh, he took off, and then um, the other guy administered what first aid he could, and and uh, it was 3 o'clock
1: before the helicopter showed up and picked
2: me up.
0: But, wow. And the yeah. rest of all of that's on your um, podcast for those that want yeah. to listen. I want to yep.
1: cut you off a little bit there because the story itself, yeah. you, I mean –
0: it's unreal to listen to and, um, you know, it's a, it's a retell here but a um, bit of a taste. But head over to South's podcast and um, check it out. I'm sure that you'll be able to find other things in there as a um, hunter, not just as a bow hunter, that you'll be more than interested in. So, um, South, I can't believe that um, to this day you've still been able to operate a bow on your shoulder's good and 19 puncture wounds from
1: big land carnivore is
2: something. Yeah,
1: the sad part about it was like... I obviously, cut my hunt short and uh,
2: I couldn't shoot a bow for a couple months. Um, bef- you know, while my shoulder healed, but I was able to go back to work that same week.
1: <laughs> so that was a bit of a letdown. <laughs> yeah, that is an anticlimax, yeah. <laughs> yep, uh-huh. yep, yep.
0: So, when you uh go hunting um, and you're taking a stick bow, what's your setup? What do you run?
2: So, I've got a uh, one of one obviously, one of my bows, I'm shooting an apex <laughs> ILF with longbow limbs. I've got a 27 and a half inch draw length. Um, I shoot the medium limbs on a 17 inch riser so it makes a 60 inch bow. I'm shooting 50 pounds at 27 and 52 pounds at 27 and a half inches. Um, I' shoot three under. I use a clicker with a deliberate you know release, and um, I'm shooting gold tip kinetics, the 400 spine with a 250 grain point, 75 grain stainless steel insert. I'm shooting two-inch long feathers that are four fletched. Let's see what else on my setup there. Uh, I'm shooting the Valkyrie three-blade broadheads. Uh, I think that's uh, pretty well covers the the whole equipment side of it there.
0: Yep. Well, that's an interesting thing to um, hear your poundage because I think that a lot of people when they first come across to traditional archery, particularly from compound hunting is they they um overbow themselves and you know you might be hunting with a 70 pound compound and then you come across to traditional archery and think that you need the same sort of poundage to blow through an animal where they they kind of work completely different but if someone was to ring up and um coming across from compound or coming from rifle hunting they'd be able to talk to you on the phone about their sort of hunting and you'd be able to give them some tips
1: and Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah, and I find the same thing. I find I mean psychologically I I did the same thing when I was shooting a compound and made the the transition and I did some dabbling back and forth while I was shooting a compound but ultimately when I was making that switch um I was still caught up in the lighter arrow fast, you know, setup when I was shooting a compound and I was shooting you know, at times up to 80 pounds and, and most of the time around 75 pounds. And actually I did the right thing as far as from a draw weight standpoint, I dropped down to 49 and then worked my way up to 55 and then I've come back down now to 52 myself. Um, but I was still shooting that light arrow and was looking for, you know, speed and, uh, and kind of missing the boat on that heavy arrow and, and, uh, you know, uh, and I was shooting a sharp, you know, cut to the point broadhead, but I was definitely I was shooting a lighter arrow that would, is not really the best setup when you're shooting a stick bow, in my opinion.
0: So I'm pretty much on the same train there. I think that I like to to have that FOC um, worked out fairly well, and that it's when it impacts, it impacts hard because it's driving at a lot different feet per second than a compound. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you're not relying on so much that. Uh, speed and energy that those the high energy bows give you particularly these days with the new um compounds that are out you it's like getting punched by mike tyson yeah you you really want that steam train effect out of a tread bow
1: yeah
2: what sort of distances do you
0: target your animals at
2: the furthest deer i've shot with a stick bow is 40 yards and that was a mule deer um and most of my shots are definitely sub 20 yards and and a lot of them sub 10 yards But I like, to, um, I like to make sure that I'm, you know, I, I practice a lot out at 35, out to 35, and I don't spend a whole lot of time shooting further than that. Um, but if, a, if I get an opportunity that kind of distance, I want to feel proficient at that. But most of the time, my shots are, you know, are closer. And I've personally, I get a lot of satisfaction out of getting as close as I can to animals rather than trying to be a sniper and shooting them at longer distance. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that, uh, and this is my own philosophy and I don't, you know, judge others or, or put my beliefs upon others. But, um, I think that, you know, a bow and arrow was kind of designed to be a short-range weapon, and yeah. and uh, we've done a lot technologically to stretch that distance out. And and uh, when I had a compound, I took advantage of that myself as well. And and uh, but just from a philosophical standpoint, my my you know whole philosophy has changed as I've gone to a stick bow, and now um, I personally rather than like if there's you know if I'm hunting for a week and I'm seeing. You know, giant bucks, and I'm seeing medium sized bucks, and I'm seeing small ones. Most of the time, I'll pass up stock opportunities on the small ones, but I'm just as happy to stock a medium sized buck than hold out for a larger one, especially if that involves, you know, a stock where I know that I can get right on top of that deer. Then I'll pass up a stock opportunity to a larger buck that might be an iffy opportunity over a fun story and experience that I'll get out of getting super close to maybe a a subordinate deer.
0: I think that that in itself is when you come across to traditional archery, I mean, um, from my own personal point of view, I've been rifle hunting, then I went to camera, and then I was getting close enough to them with the camera that I thought I'll try this with a bow, went to the uh, compound bow, and now across to um, the traditional gear, and I've got a recurve and a longbow from U South, and um, I think for me, it's not about the actual getting the animal on the ground. That's part of it. Mm-hmm. That learning my field craft, yeah, and getting close, and then having a giggle when you blow it. Yep, you know. Yeah. Um, and it can be something as simple as a wind switch that you should have been switched on, that you've dropped off a hill and you're going into a creek system and the, the wind's going to be running two different ways there, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. But there are the things that I think as a traditional archer, you spend a lot more time learning, even subconsciously, you, you stop and it slows you down, you know, and I think in the world that we live in today that um, for me, um, coming across from um, my employment past, I needed something to slow me down a little bit and appreciate mm-hmm. the small things in life. And when you're stalking and you're at that 15 yards from some of these animals, you really need to pay attention to, you know, your wind, the sound, scent, shine, shadow movement, all All those things. All those
1: details become so critical.
0: You know, and I think um, traditional hunting offers more than just picking up a a string and a stick and um, being able to shoot an animal. I think it does so much more for your soul and for your own mental health as well. That's my own
2: personal opinion. Yeah, I'd agree with you. I mean, you know, it's that chance when you get up there in the mountains to kind of unwind and really relax in a, to a level you don't get to experience back at home when, you know, the phone's and social media is going off, you know, something, there's always a distraction. Yeah. And uh, when you're up there on the mountain and you're just watching the clouds pass by, and even if there's not any animals in sight, there's so much beauty in nature to be able to soak in and kind of revitalize yourself
0: and you're blessed in the area that you are now for sure i mean when i wake up in the morning in your yeah. guest house and look out and i'm seeing the snow topped mountains against a splashback of green as you come down onto the flats i mean that's something that you know if you don't appreciate those small things you know
2: <laughs> yeah it's I mean, it is therapeutic it yeah. absolutely is and i mean you you came in an incredible time of year for sure and we've got a you know really good wet spring and this is about as pretty as it gets, you know, right now. That's just absolutely
0: superb. And those people that are listening, you get over this end of the world and have a look around and, wow, you know, I mean, I've seen um, the goats, I've seen muleys, I've seen uh, uh, elk. Yeah. A whole bunch of different stuff, you know, um, and outside of just the animals, just the scenery itself and coming up here through the canyon is just something to see, you mm-hmm. know, just yeah. the rock formations. We had all those little... Weasels, they were weasels. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah well, unfortunately, not all made across the road. <laughs> that was this tragic Something event? So when they should have zagged. Yep. yep. Uh, a little family of them went across the road in front of us, and a couple cars got
1: took them, took two of them out. Yeah, it was sad, but uh, that's part of part of life. there, the circle of life. Yeah, totally. Well, part of what I've been doing here is
0: watching South put together bows and that sort of stuff. So. Um, I guess if I could take you back to your previous shop just just quickly and then you move up here and yep. you're set up. Where did you have the shop before here, So,
2: so I, I lived in Northern California, grew up, you know, born and raised in Northern California my whole life and and uh, my wife and I moved over here a couple of years ago to Colorado and uh, it was something that we've been looking at since two thousand twelve and, and uh picking out a you know, a location in Colorado, then finding a house and remodeling it, then building a shop and and then moving my shop from California to here. And I had um, <clears throat> about uh, 4, a 4,400-square-foot 4, shop back sure. in California, so it was really big. And I, I did construction before this, so I had a cabinet shop set up and I and, uh, did hardwood floors and stairs and hand railings and all that and and uh, basically any interior woodworking we, we covered. And uh, then in 2012 – no, excuse me, 2007, um, I bought Stalker – uh, which was called Stalker Recurves at the time from a friend of mine that I'd met back in the oh it was the mid mid nineties and uh, he was also in construction and was you know starting this uh, this traditional archery company and uh, starting a family also he had four kids and and uh, he had just built the business up you know to where it was really going pretty good and then he got a um, a job offer as a construction superintendent. And um, so he had, you know, in one hand pursuing this dream in in archery and in bow building, and then in the other hand he had the the 401k, the you know benefits, the paycheck, you know, steady paycheck. And and uh, with a young family, he opted to go that route. And so the company sat dormant for ten years. Yeah. And, uh, at that point, um, his wife was a professional photographer and she needed the space for a studio. And, uh, he, so he got the eviction notice and <laughs> I got a phone call. And so I ended up with the business and, and, uh, so it worked out really well for me. I was, at that point, um, I was uh, 20 years into construction. And uh, and so I started, you know, kind of kicked the company back into gear again. And I, I actually, for the first couple of years, I wasn't really trying to market. I was just building my skills as a boyer. And um, so it was, oh, 2000, I want to say it was 2012 when I started to shut down my construction company and transition into doing the bow building full-time. And uh, and then um, it was about the same time that we were looking at moving here to Colorado, mm-hmm. so I had yep. that kind of dream on the horizon there as well. <clears throat>
0: then you got over here, set yourself up, and just pushed stuff into every corner oh, of your workshop yeah. down there. Yeah.
2: And so my shop space here is approximately half of what yeah. I had in California. <laughs> and it shows when you walk in it's like there's there's not a square inch of, of has not uh, been utilized? Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> and uh if it hasn't been utilized then it's holding sawdust. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the tons and tons and tons of timber that you've got here, you've yeah. got some of the world's best
0: timber I think that I've seen. Um, you know, and your bows should certainly show it and how pretty they are. Um, if someone was to um, want, or want to buy a bow from you, where would they go to to have a look at that information? So
2: what I like to tell people to do um, because I have so many different wood options and then within a single species, there's a lot of different variations within that species. Uh, What I tell people is to go to my social media, either the stalker stick bows, Facebook or Instagram page. And then there's tons of bow pictures of different wood combinations. And then just start screen capturing those um, combinations that appeal to you. And then either text or email those to me. um, And then we can nail down wood species, cost of a bow, you know, compared to what the person's budget is and get that sorted out. And then, you know, we can at the same time figure out which bow model, recurve long bow, you know, et cetera, Um, bow length, draw, draw weight, draw length, et cetera, and then get all those things figured out and then, uh, and then iron it out. So it actually, um, you know, is something that the person is really happy with. And I get a fair amount of people that just say, look, I'm overwhelmed. I've seen, you know, look at the pictures All of them are beautiful. I don't know. You know, just build me something. And they'll say, okay, my budget is X, and I like dark woods, or I like light woods, or I like lots of grain contrast. or, And that'll give me some guidance, and, and uh, then I'll, I'll, you know, build something, and I've yet to have somebody that has not been happy with it. it. Yeah, yeah. mm
1: mm-hmm.
0: And you can also customize a bow with, uh, you've got a laser downstairs, yeah. it's a new addition?
2: Yeah, so we've been doing, um, you know, we've got some stock images of, you know, say, elk antler, deer antler, you know, wolf track, bear track, uh, turkey tracks, turkey feather, et cetera, that we can burn into a riser. Or what we've done on a number of occasions is, say, somebody shot a um, a really nice uh, samber or... Um, you know a, a buck or elk or whatever it is then they can send us a picture of that then we can scan that um it, digitize it and then burn that image into their riser um and uh so really get a custom kind of you know a custom image there that yeah. goes on unreal. their bow
1: yeah
0: unreal <clears throat> i do like the uh new or well, newish um addition as well on the riser with the checkering the checkering yeah and- the stippling looks really cool and feels really good too so for me i've just got had a bow um put together by South, and i've got it checkered i think that when you're working a lot back in australia in those really cold winters is when we hunt a lot of you know having a bow that you know, you have that nice positive grip. You know, when you pull yeah. back, you can, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a really good feel.
2: Yeah, the checkering comes into play also. I mean, even in the summertime when your hands are sweaty, same, yeah, totally. you, know, you can have the same issue, or you're shooting with gloves, or yeah, it's uh, quite a few. of My customers take advantage of that, and and uh, it does. I mean, it adds another layer of of uh, of artistic, you know, attraction to to yeah. your bow there yep. as well.
0: And when we <clears> talk <throat> talk about
1: um, center cup. Um, and all that sort of stuff where are most of your bows sitting so depending on the model they're either an eighth inch pass center or three sixteenths inch pass center
2: and um most of the boyars nowadays i would say are cut in past center except um you know probably like most of the howard hills sort to of d style longbows are are not cut past center for the most part yeah and i uh, um, so I think that's probably comes less into play in consideration, although, um, I mean, you certainly want to find that out because that'll affect your aerospine spine definitely. And, yeah. and then I'll, um, it can also, you know, if you're not cut past center, then, uh, a lot of times you're having to hold off from a left and right standpoint, having to hold off your target there in order to, to hit, you know, in that center line there where you need to hit. so Totally. Yeah, but all mine are cut past center. Yeah.
0: I also find that uh, your bows are um, fit and slim compared to some other bows that I've picked up before where they're really big and chunky and the risers are just really, you know, really heavy. That's a a thing that your bows mostly come out with a really good um, hand grip. Mm -hmm. Um, Just... It's a hard question, maybe or maybe not, but what did, how many inches around if someone was at home in Australia and haven't got a
1: stalker bow and they've got another bow, what's, what's the sort of grip size? So, boy, I, this is embarrassing. I should know that off the top of my head, but I don't remember. It's been a while
2: since I've yeah. measured the throat of yeah. my grips, and they change somewhat depending on the model. Yeah. The Coyote model is a slightly slimmer grip than the others. The Coyote, I start out with an inch-and-a-half-thick stock, and then take it down from there. Yep. The Wolverine is inch and seven-eighths, and the ILF is inch and three-quarters. And uh, between the Wolverine and the ILF, they, they approximate about the same grip as uh, as I remove material there. Uh, but the Coyote is a slightly narrower, you know, from when viewed from the, the back of the bow or the belly of the bow there. It's a little, profile-wise, it's a little slimmer there. Yeah,
0: you know, I didn't want to put you on the spot, but I think it's important when you can't, in Australia's... Um, not devoid of different types of bows, but there's more people in the US that shoot trad bow. And if you go yeah. to a trad meeting, there's more opportunity to see one of your bows. So if someone's thinking about it, it might just stop a whole lot of people ringing you or messaging you saying right. you make big fat handles and that sort of stuff, you know, yeah. you around the throat. So I I find it to be quite a a really good riser for a tradition from a transition from compound hunting across to traditional hunting I found that there wasn't in my grip and how I held the bow it was very similar to um, my Matthews that I shoot as well it was in that same sort of ballpark so
2: yeah if I'm not mistaken all the all the bows that you have of mine are all coyotes Yeah, yeah yeah and that's one that I find a lot of guys that are gravitating from shooting a compound they gravitate towards that that model because of the the slimmer you know slightly slimmer handle and it's not that the wolverine is big and clunky by any stretch it just has a little more meat on the riser than the coyote does yeah totally yeah and it's a definite like you know positive grip where you slide your hand into it and there's not a lot of room to move it around and get an inconsistent you know hand uh, location in the throat of the grip where that to me is one of the biggest uh determining factors and accuracy is having a grip that you can repeat you know time and time again and yeah. and like the d-shaped you know suitcase style longbows those are more challenging to me to shoot um repetitively uh accurately than than a more defined pistol grip style long or recurve or longbow
0: that's a a, a true thing to be to be saying that and i think it's that repeatability you know, and know that you can, the whole, through whole shot sequence, you know, to be able to go from your, your grip is where it starts, mm-hmm. less torque, you know, yep. been able to find a good anchor and then follow through with your release. Um, a question that I had for you when I first sort of was looking at buying a bow from you and, and uh, I, I didn't know anything about traditional bows and it was a, a question I threw out there is that I wanted a bow that was um, relatively forgiving, but at same time, with some speed um, and around that 50, 55 pound. um, Is there a length in bow that you would like to guide people towards or is it a personal thing or like?
2: Yeah, um, so there are some... Like if you have a 31 inch draw length, you're not going to want to order a 56 inch bow. So there definitely is, um, you know, some parameters that you want to work within. Uh, Typically speaking, the longer your draw length, the longer the bow. And that comes down just to the physics of, you know, the working limb and what you can, what you can get away with. And as, if your draw length is too long for the length of the bow, then the bow will start to what's called stack, where you know you'll be drawing, say, a smooth two and a half to three pounds per inch as you're drawing your bow, and then at a certain point, then that bow is going to start all of a sudden increasing from three pounds per inch to three and a half to four, and what you're doing is you're working against the physics of that bow, and uh, and eventually you're going to get limb failure. Um, so, you know, if you have a 28-inch draw length, for, for example, um, you know, you could easily shoot a, um, a 58, 60, 62-inch, you know, there's not going to be a problem shooting a longer Limb with a shorter draw length, you're not going to be maybe as the bow's not going to be as efficient for you, yep. but you're not going to be damaging or have the potential to be damaging the bow. Yep. Um, but if let's say a 28 inch draw length, I I typically tell guys 60, 62 inch like that, and I think that you're going to, you know, if you if anything err on the longer side rather than the shorter side. I mean, if you look take an Olympic archer, for example, they're shooting 70-inch recurves. There's nobody in the Olympics shooting a short bow. They're all shooting longer bows, and there's a reason for it. They're more accurate than shooting a shorter bow. And there's, and there's definitely a call for shorter bows if you're shooting out of ground blind, yep. if you're hunting out of a tree stand and thicker cover. Um, and some people just, it appeals to them. Yep. But More ninja-like. Yeah, <laughs> yep. But... You know, in a big butt here, to me, you're going to shoot a longer bow, all things being equal, a longer bow more accurately than a shorter bow. Yep. and so I mean, ultimately, every one of us should be concerned about accuracy because that means putting the animal the arrow where it needs to be in the vitals of an animal. and uh, and you're gonna be way better off placing your arrow where you need to than you know than at the outer edge of that kill zone. I'd much rather put one right in the I center. Think. So yeah, so I mean personally, I with my twenty-seven and a half inch draw length, I'm I'm shooting sixty inch bows typically, yep. um, and uh, most guys are twenty-seven inches and above, and uh, and so then you know most probably my most popular bow length is sixty-two inch that I sell yeah. to the most.
0: Yeah, uh, it's a fantastic length for me. Mm-hmm. I'm six-two and. I'd like to say that I'm 220 pounds, but I'll be lying. I'm, I'm more up to the 245, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I just find it's um, for Australian game. I don't think you need anything more. And getting over bowed as well, I think, is a, is a problem that people think they need a 70-pound longbow or, right. or whatever else.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so looking back at uh, my mentor, Charlie, um, when he first started the company, I've got all his notebooks when he was building bows back in the 80s. And rarely was he building a bow lower than sixty pounds, and it was so. There's yeah, a man. lot there in the low sixties, mid sixties, some in the high fifties. And now, if you looked at my books, it's forty-five to fifty-five, yep. and uh, and a lot of guys shooting sub, you know, sub fifty. And they're killing deer, elk, etc. with that kind of draw weight, and it comes down to good arrow flight, getting that knock flying right behind the broadhead, so your arrow's you know flying in a straight line, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then a good cut to the point broadhead, and and uh, you can get it done with pretty light poundage.
0: Well, talking about um, light poundage, um, you I'm not quite sure if you still do have the grow with your bow program. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm if I was a hunter in Australia and I wanted to get my kids into as I was a traditional hunter in Australia and I want to get my kids into traditional hunting, what's the outline of that program?
2: Okay. So, um, I offer a couple of bows for youth. One is the weasel, which I've had kids under two years old start shooting that one. Wow. And that's a, um, it's a three piece takedown bow, great value. It's 199 bucks and, um, I build that one from 10 to 20 pounds and I've got an 11 year old that's still shooting it and will be still shooting it for a while cause he's not very big for an 11 year old. <laughs> and, uh, then the next model is the Bobcat and that's the growth your bow one there. So the, the deal with that one is it's basically a scale, slightly scaled down coyote. And, uh, and I, I, cater this to not only to youth but to women um, in interest in getting more youth and more women into the sport and then also recognizing that particularly with youth you know you start them out at let's say 10 or 12 years old you buy them a custom bow and then the kid grows goes through a growth spurt and all of a sudden you know they're way stronger and taller and their draw length is stretched out and maybe you know the 56 inch bow that you got for them now isn't Isn't you know it's too short of a bow and the draw weight's too light? Well, what I'll do is I'll build another set of limbs at their specs and then just trade them. And uh, and then same with women too. So, if you know if you are interested in getting your wife into it, my recommendation is don't try to build a bow that's going to be at the max you know of what she can draw, but build something that's fun for her to shoot and then let her get out there, get hooked on it. You know get her form down right and um and all that and start getting accurate then if she needs to work her way up in hunting weight then again do the same thing i'll build a, another set of limbs at a at that spec and then swap them out and and then she can keep on going with that same bow and and won't be out the cost of buying a whole nother bow yeah that's excellent
0: and i think that uh, it also encourages the kids as they move through their bows they're they're um Shooting a good bow, mm-hmm. they, they get that consistency in a grip. You know, yep. if, if they stay with your brand, you know, they they can certainly push that through into their older years. Yeah. So if someone wanted their wife or if they were just a lady ringing up on their own and they had no connection, um, you'll be able to help them out with their um you know weights and that sort of stuff that sure. they mm-hmm.
2: Yeah it can be a little bit challenging um as far as determining draw length and draw weight and all that if they don't have the resources of you know either somebody that they can um You know, somebody has a bow that they're capable. That's light enough that they're capable of drawing. That they can get you know a a draw length measured. And but I mean, it's not super critical. Like a compound, if you're ordering a compound, you need to know those modules. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Whereas a stick bow, if I know that. Um, you know, worst case scenario, you measure tip to tip on your arm length, you know, outstretched arms, divide that by two and a half and gets, that gets you pretty close yeah. on your draw length. And, and then if I'm, you know, if, if you're, if I build a bow that, um, let's say the person calls me and says, I got a 25 inch draw length and I want it 25 pounds at 20, you know, 25 inches, then, then, and they're off by an inch. Well, it's going to affect the draw weight, but it's not going to affect the way the bow shoots. So if they actually have a 26 inch draw length, it'll be, you know, 27 and a half to 28 pounds. So it'll be a little bit heavier in draw weight, but they're still fine to shoot that bow. And somebody even with a 27 or 28 inch draw length could still shoot it. It's just going to be heavier as you draw that bow further.
0: And I think um, just to go back onto, you might have gone over that a bit fast, because it's one question I get asked a lot is how do I measure my draw length? And without getting too technical, what you were just saying there is outstretch your arms like a bird. Yep. Measure from your fingertip to your fingertip. Yep. And then divide that overall length by
2: two and a half. Yep.
0: And that gives you a ballpark of where you're at, your draw length. Yeah. yeah.
2: And that's the best way ultimately is to have a lightweight bow that, that you could put an arrow in. Draw the bow back, you know, anchor corner of your mouth if that's where you're anchoring. And what I like to do is have a person draw it back three times, and then I'll make a mark on an arrow, and then I'll and that's at the target side of the riser, flush with the target side of the riser. And then I'll have them you know draw it back three times. I'll look where that mark on the arrow is and make sure that they're you know because typically what happens even with experienced archers without the aid of a clicker. Uh, which is a draw check to make sure you're drawing yep. back the yep. same distance every time everybody draws back and ink. Usually the first time they're stretching it out more and then it, and progressively sure. it gets shorter and shorter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I really like about a clicker is it keeps you honest. Yeah, totally. And uh, but I'll take the average of those three measurements there and then determine their draw length that way.
0: Yeah, I do think that the clicker is something I haven't run with yet, and I can already hear, hear our kidno laughing at me. But, um, <laughs> you know, being able to have that consistency from the very beginning to the end, like we we're talking about before, is really important because if I was drawing at 28 and inch at the beginning of the day, and then I've shot 15 arrows, now I'm only drawing at 26 inch, you mm-hmm. know, and I'm, I'm collapsing in my form and those sort of things, and the bow's not going to perform the same as it was at the beginning of the day, well, the bow will. But what I'm doing will show in, on my archery. Right. So Yeah. Um, stock bows. So someone doesn't have to go through if they're not that sort of some people just don't like the whole yep. hassle.
2: Instant gratification.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want a bow. Yep. Right. I don't, so, don't want it now. <laughs> yeah.
0: So where are you at with stock bows?
2: So um we we do some build specific for stock bows, um, where you know, maybe I, I see a piece of wood that I get inspired to build a bow on or, um, or I've got a surplus inventory of one species or or another of wood. And so I'll build some specific stock bows and kind of work those into my custom builds. Um, but most of the time it's, I miss weight on a set of limbs and then I'll build a riser to complement those, those limbs. And then we'll list them on our website under stock bows. And so I usually have, I don't know, it depends on the time of year. Sometimes sometimes we're fat in stock bows and I might have 10, 15, 20, 30 stock bows and at other times like right now coming into hunting season here in the US, <laughs> I'm pretty lean on stock I bows. the cupboard and all these moths flew out. Right. <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> yeah. And like right now I'm I'm selling them while I'm still building them. People yeah. are calling and saying, "Hey, you got anything in stock coming up or in stock that's not on your website?" and and uh, so I, I've actually got several that, you know, are in production that, um, that aren't, you know, that are already sold that have n- will yeah. never make it to the website.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, but usually there's, there's some, you know, and usually in the off seasons the best time to find them. Well,
0: that, that um, in itself is a really good uh, yeah, explanation, I guess, of what a, sto- a stock bow is. I'll just take you back to when you said um, the limbs miss weight. So if people are listening and don't know what that means, they don't have to be worried about they're getting a second-rate limb. It just just means that um, you might have been shooting for 55 and you
1: got 54. Exactly,
2: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And and actually, that's a good thing to clarify is that – industry standard when you order a bow is plus or minus two pounds in draw weight. So if you order a 50 pound bow, then, you know, if it ends up 48 or 52, it's going to be somewhere in that range. Usually I get within a pound if I don't hit it on the nose. Um, but some, um, but uh, there's inconsistencies, you know, woods, a natural product. It's got very varying um, spine within the wood. And then also, the fiberglass that we use has you know there's inconsistencies in the manufacturing process and the materials and so despite my best efforts i might miss weight on a set of limbs and then at that point those limbs are not going to remake the limbs adjusting for that missed weight. And then, you know, usually I'm hitting weight on the second set and then uh, that customer gets that set, the set that I missed weight on. um, Then I'm building a riser for that set of limbs. So there's, you know, not anything wrong with that set of limbs. It's just the fact that it didn't come out where that customer wanted it at.
0: And I can tell you from standing in the workshop for the last week, watching um, south and his very 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 small crew run around down there getting stuff done. That it can be the difference is a touch on a sander um, mm-hmm. between on the nose and underweight. It's not you know it's not a um, just a you know a suck it and see and let's see how we go this time, boys. There's certainly a lot of science that goes into the actual uh, production of the bow and where you're at with poundages and things it just like South was saying that being a natural material and just that tiny little touch on the sand and all of a sudden you're under poundage you know so um I can certainly vouch for the buckets of timber and uh, the time that goes into the bows that they're certainly not a thing that um You know, they're custom-made, made made by hand, and I think anyone that that has any idea about anything that's made by hand, there's always those variances and differences in in the product that gets turned out. Yeah,
2: there's plenty of variation i mean there's inconsistencies in the calipers that you're using to measure the thickness of the wood there's inconsistencies in the wood there's inconsistencies in the fiberglass there's you know there's so many variables that go into it that uh,
1: sometimes i wonder you know it's like a miracle when you do hit it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yep. yeah so for people that are um they've looked at your website they've looked at the
0: glossy catalog all that sort of stuff they maybe of the belief that uh, you've got a
1: really big warehouse and 50 people working for you? (laughs) Yeah, not so. (laughs) Not so? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it goes to end. My wife letters them for me. You know,
2: my my kids in there vacuuming, (laughs) you know, cleaning up the (laughs) dust. And then there's, right now, there's three of us building bows. My son um, is out from uh, college right now working in the summer, and he's helping us glue, and so that's... uh, that's you know robustly increased our our um our personnel so when he leaves uh there'll be just two of us and during hunting through hunting season and then i'll be hiring a third person full-time post-hunting season yeah right on yeah
0: and and what's your lead time for about the moment
2: right now we're getting close to being caught up so we're running two to three months you know with hunting season that'll provide some interruptions so i'm still telling people two to three months even though you know, right now in our workload, we could I could probably say shorter than that, and and uh, so you know from a custom Boyer standpoint, we're uh, we're f- pretty short on our lead times. There's guys that are over a year, but I think a, a lot of that is just they don't have the machinery and aren't producing you know the, the machinery to be as efficient as w- the way we run, and uh, so they're not consequently not producing as large of a volume of bows as we are. Yeah,
0: totally, and international shipping. Is no No problem.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We've shipped to Australia all the time, China, you know, Europe, Canada, all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. Cool.
0: If you have a a stalker bow that needs to be refurbed, Mm -hmm. can we send it back to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep.
2: Yep. So my biggest problem on repairs, refinishes, modifications, weight changes, et cetera, are people forgetting to put their return information in the, <laughs> in the package. So all of a sudden, you know, and, and some of this, you know, can be to my – to my. I mean, no one really just sends me a bow out of the blue. They'll call or email or whatever and then talk to me about it, but then they expect me to remember, and that's a, a shortcoming on my part is that, man, as soon as I get off the phone, I, I'm my brain's somewhere else. And uh, so – you know, even if they overnighted it or even if they got it to me an hour later, chances <laughs> are I'm probably still not going to remember whose bow it was. But make sure if you're sending a bow back to me to put your return shipping information and then also description of what you want done or fixed or weight, you know, reduction or whatever the case may be. So Yeah, right
0: on. Well, I haven't had a problem with any of the bows that I've got from you, South, so
1: um, touch wood. We'll, I won't have to use that service. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I get guys that are, well, Al Kidner. It looks like he drug his, his bow down the road with a
2: pickup, you know, behind his pickup truck on the way to his hunting spot. To be yeah. honest
0: with you, it's the length of his arms and his knuckles. So oh, when he walks, the he just bow drags actually on drags the on the yeah. ground. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've
2: got other customers that are like that, that are hard on bows, and I just refinished another one for a, a buddy of mine that pretty much annually sends it back to me. and And uh, I'm not don't get me wrong i'm not the least bit offended i like to see my bows getting <laughs> and used yeah. and i'd much rather see them get all scratched and dinged up than be hanging on pegs in someone's house with them afraid to you know bring it out and get a scratch on it yeah. so uh, but it's uh yeah so i'll get guys that will be shipping them back to have them refinished or you know what have you or or like i said i mean weight reduction is probably the biggest thing where either guys are getting older uh, or get an injury or um, have uh, initially um, been a little overzealous in what their <laughs> estimation of their their draw weight abilities are. And, and I'll get some guys that order a stock bow and they're like, uh, yeah, um, ordered a little heavier than I should have. <laughs> and, and so I'll scrub a few pounds off of it and be able to get it back to them and get them back in action. So
0: Cool. So I guess the other coin, the side of that coin is, If I uh, had 50-pound limbs that I was happy with to go and hunt um, all my small game rabbits and that sort of stuff in Australia, Um, if I was planning on a hunt on a bigger species, say a water buff, um, you could build some limbs on their own and send them over. There's no problem with that sort of stuff. Yeah,
2: with the coyote model, with the Apex ILF model, um, and the jackal, I can do that. With the Wolverine, I need the whole bow back in my shop to be able to build a set of limbs to fit that to that individual riser so yeah. they're not not modular in that respect. But the Coyote, yeah, I can just build a set of limbs and ship them to you. Cool.
0: Well, the ILF um, is a new thing that you're – well, not so much a new thing, but it's a thing that you certainly – Um, turning quite a few limbs out with can you just um, a quick explanation what ILF is
2: so the acronym ILF stands for international limb fit and what that uh, what that is is a standardized system that any manufacturer that builds either an ILF limb or an ILF riser will interchange with any other company that builds ILF components so uh, my limbs will fit on you know a Hoyt satori riser Um, my limbs will fit on a dryad ilf riser my um, you know they can take um, Yuka limbs and put them on my ilf riser etc so all those components are interchangeable which makes it pretty neat um, because then you can really customize um, stuff also you can get you know, inexpensive ILF limbs out of China that are, you know, I don't know, 150 bucks. Um, And so if you wanted to get a really nice looking custom bow, good performing, you order a bow from me, but then you want a set of practice limbs that you want to knock 15 pounds off of, well, you can save yourself some money by ordering a set of those imported limbs and uh, practice with those. And, uh, and I get a lot of guys that do that. Now, there's several other advantages of the ILF in that you get weight adjustment like you do with a compound, not to the degree you get with a compound, but you get about four pounds of weight adjustment. So the way I rate my limbs is I rate them in the middle of their draw weight. So if you order a set of 50-pound limbs, it'll go from 48 to 52 pounds. And then that also, with that weight adjustment, it also allows you to adjust the tiller. And the tiller is the measurement from the string to the, the intersection of the, of the bottom of the riser and the limbs. And that will, um, being able to adjust the tiller is a, um, is a, a big assistance in tuning. Um, if you go from shooting split finger to shooting three under to shooting with a fixed crawl, then um, all those, what you're doing is you're changing the point in the center you know in reference to the center line of the string where you're where you're drawing so essentially the lower you're drawing by going from a split finger you're closer to the center of the string and as you drop your finger lower on the string you're pulling yeah, more yep. on that bottom limb and so you need to be able to adjust for that and uh, so you can then fine-tune your tuning if you're going from you know different shooting styles or just uh, you know, you could even be shooting three under and you're putting more pressure on your top finger versus your bottom finger compared to your buddy. And that will affect how that bottom limb is the timing of that bottom yeah. limb. So being able to adjust the, the tiller is a, is a nice function. And then there's with my risers, there's lateral limb adjustment. So if uh, a set of limbs that were built on a Hoyt you know, don't line up in the center on my riser, you can make adjustments for that so you can get that string tracking down the center of the limb.
0: Yeah, super cool. I think it's uh, it's a process that I love watching. You put all that through and and looking at the bow and the torque and setting the string and setting where all those sort of, the you know, bits and pieces are. So it's a lot, it opened my eyes anyway to more than just um, what I thought it was.
2: Yeah, there's a, there's a lot that goes into building the bow that is not um immediately apparent to somebody who's just looking at the finished product i mean there's a lot of steps and and there's quite a few steps that that i do just the the way my handles are constructed versus a lot of other boilers, um there's a lot of uh you know reinforcements that we build into our risers with an internal i-beam that stiffens the riser and strengthens it that yep. that most other bowyers aren't putting into their into their bows. There definitely are some functional um, advantages of the of the bows that I build over you know some of the other custom bowyers out there.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a thing. It's a work of art, that's for sure. You know, um, I th- think to wind up on the, um, what happens in the shop, back to a little bit of hunting. Um, if you had a dream hunt in Australia, what are some species that you're aware of that's in Australia that you'd like to hunt?
2: Oh boy. Um you know, if, if time wasn't an issue, what would be really cool is to um to uh I I man, I don't know what it is about fallow deer, but I really like, <laughs> you know, the cool palmation of the antlers yeah, of a fallow yep, deer. Yep. And if I and I like red stag too. Those are really neat looking. So if I could do like a combination red stag, fallow deer, northern territories hog and buffalo hunt. There's four species right there that would yep, be really fun unreal. to. Yeah. <laughs> that'd be that'd be a kind of a bucket list little circuit through australia
0: yeah and fellow deer you've got every other well a lot of other species of deer over here to hunt or if not here in uh, hawaii and other yeah. places in the in the us region i think that um hunting in australia offers its own uniqueness which is um different but similar to here yeah you know and i think that just being able to come to australia and hang out with some australians is something I think will make you giggle for a long oh, time. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah, no doubt about it. And in my experience with uh, with spending time with the Aussies is like they're the friendliest people you'd ever meet. I mean, I tell people up here, um, that they're even friendlier than canadians which if it always pisses off the canadians <laughs> if i say that in company of a canadian like, what? <laughs> yeah. yeah but no it's by every experience i've had going down to the the show the two hunting shows i've been to down there and and then i i've uh, developed a, a following down there with stalker bows and and everybody I've interacted with has just been you know, absolute gem of a person to deal with. So it's been a really positive experience for me overall.
0: We would love to have uh, you and your wife come down and um, track around and have a bit of a look. And I'm sure we'll be able to sort you out with um, those sort of species that you're after. And maybe a few others as well that you wouldn't know
1: of or, or um can we really shoot that so yeah yeah uh, <laughs>
2: yeah there's yeah you can get quite a
1: mixed bag
2: when you go down there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: if you're if you're into being a little adventurous yeah yeah um i guess on the same thing if someone wanted to come over to uh,
0: america are you aware of uh, you mightn't be aware of the current legislation and every state's a little bit different but is it easy for someone from australia to come over and hunt over here do you know or
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just as easy, as far as from a restriction standpoint, you know, if somebody's coming from one state to the next, there's no more restriction for a person coming from Australia to hunt, you know, out of, than a person coming from out of state to hunt within another state. So, um, you know, when you're talking about the West, most of those tags are allotted through draws um and some of them are over the counter so i mean somebody who's inspired in australia right now being the end of june could conceivably still come over here and hunt mule deer and hunt elk in some states um like colorado's got a lot of over-the-counter opportunity for elk all the uh, mule deer hunts are all draw so you have to plan in advance for that and some of those were, are require preference points which means that you need to put in and and unsuccessfully one year not get a tag but get a preference point so the following year that gives you preference over somebody who does not have a point going into the draw and there's a lot of good archery opportunities for mule deer in colorado with this um with one point and some even with zero points yeah um if you, you know, some other states are over the counter for mule deer, um, Idaho being a good example, um, you know, and quality of the hunt can vary depending on unit and, uh, region in the state, uh, or, you know, which state you're, you're looking at going to, but yeah, there's a, uh, in tons of public land in the West. That's one of the incredible things about America is that that, that uh those public lands are available to not just to citizens of the US but to you know anybody and uh and free um yep. you know so you can come over here buy your hunting license and tag and then uh take off with a backpack and wander around in you know massive wilderness areas that you couldn't you know hardly walk from one end to the other yeah, in yeah. Uh, you know multiple days
0: yeah, look, uh, I can't say enough either about uh, the hospitality from this side. So, um, if anyone in Australia that's thinking about coming to America, don't everyone bomb south up with um, questions. But there's certainly enough people over here that will help you out with, um, you know, just some little do's and don'ts, I guess, um, or point you in the right direction to maybe if you wanted a guided hunt or areas that you can go on public land. Don't be afraid to hook up on those hunting sites and ask because of I've not yet maybe it's the people that I've been associating with, but I haven't found any guys or girls over here that aren't um hospitable and happy to help provided you're not being a, uh, you know
2: yeah and some of the uh, I mean for somebody who's not you know connected quote unquote in the industry like you know you've made connections and and uh and uh, there's so uh, there's a lot of uh different hunting forums and just getting on there and and uh you know and stating what your interests are and you're coming from, you know, out of the country and, and, uh, um, and maybe even working out a trade, yep. you know, for a hunt or, you know, trade for information would be a good foot in the door for getting, you know, maybe better Intel than you would if you were just, uh, you know, reaching out there for some freebies. Those
0: international uh, trades in the hunt trade, mm-hmm. they've worked so well. You know, if, if, You're going to look after me when I'm here. And um, Vicky Verka, when you come over to Australia, you're hosted so that only your costs are your air flight. Mm -hmm. You get picked up from the airport and then taken out and taken for a hunt. I think that stuff works really, really well, you know, particularly when you get to know the person that you're with um, and that you can trust them. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Look, I don't know how long we've been rolling for, but I don't want you to take up too much of your time today. Ah, no worries. Yeah, it's been absolutely unreal. And those people that um, are interested in more of South Stories, um, have a listen to podcast, as mentioned before. Um, jump on the Stalker Stickbow website, um, and you can have a look at everything from merchandise through to, so I've just picked up a pretty neat, um, what do you call it, the bag? The
1: oh, take down case. Take down, down case,
0: case. Yep. that's mm-hmm. pretty neat. He's got some pretty neat bags um yeah through to if you see him at a show somewhere he's been coming down to australia um supports are hunting down in australia as well which is just so good to see um yeah go and say good day. he's a really good fella so thanks for your time this morning south okay. oh, absolutely you know it's been unreal and that tra- tra- trade of information for australians is too and trying to open that up a little bit is, is so important so
1: have a good week thanks very much for having me stay at your house and oh absolutely yeah, yeah you're welcome anytime and it's been uh, been a blast it's been fun to uh, you know
2: see some of the woods that i've sent down to you get made into knives and and uh turn into art pieces from scrap wood out of my shop so that's been really <laughs> yeah, rewarding South
0: scrap wood is like uh <laughs> here's some melted spanish bullion i don't need it you can take it home you know and i'm like what? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah yeah it's pretty cool all yeah. right thanks brother sure thing we'll catch up soon all right
1: thank you for listening to the Hunty camp down on a podcast If you would like any information from today's show, please don't hesitate to contact us on huntingcampdownunder at gmail.com or simply hit us up on any of our social media outlets on Instagram or Facebook. Be sure to join us next week for another awesome episode and we look forward to sharing another story from Hunting Camp Down Under. Bye for now.